first started putting money away for the future, my financial advisor taught me to focus on three areas for my savings and pension, cash, stocks, and bonds. These were the only three asset classes we ever talked about. Initially, it took me a while to get my head around the nuances of each, and then I began to hear about new types of investment products. They had fancy names, which I didn't understand. I assumed they were not for me. Alternative investments was one of these terms, which included private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, art, real estate, and more. Today on Good Things Happen, I have two guests who have joined me to explain why this was and how this is now changing. Welcome Anastasia Amoroso, Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital, the financial technology company whose mission it is to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. And Megan Malone, Head of Private Equity and Real Estate for the Americas for City Global Wealth Investments. Before we start to demystify the world of alternative investments, I'd like to start by hearing your stories. How did you get into the world of investments? Was this childhood ambition, Anastasia? Uh, it wasn't exactly, uh, Jorian. Good to be joining you. Um, no, I certainly didn't plan for it as I was growing up. But when I went to college, I started out majoring in political science. And one of the first classes that we took during that program was actually uh, political economics. And it sort of dawned on me that the world revolves around economics and finance. And so it really uh, pulled me in. And that's, uh, I decided to switch my major to finance. And from there on out, it has been a passion of mine and a career path that I pursued for the last uh, 20 years. And I can say that in the last 20 years, a lot has changed in the world of investing. And speaking of alternatives, it was cash, stocks, and bonds. But over the last five years, I would say that's changed a lot for private wealth clients. And prior to coming to iCapital, I was working with private clients at JP Morgan, and more and more clients would come to us and say, well, I want to invest, but I want to invest in private markets. How do I do that? So that's really what sort of opened up my eyes to the opportunity set that we have in private markets and alternatives. Uh, and iCapital has uh, been a great place uh, to help clients uh, access alternatives more and more. Beautiful. How about you, Megan? Yeah, I also can say it wasn't sort of a childhood ambition. Um, I actually went to uh, school for hotel administration. I wanted to, you know, be in the service industry and and sort of making those experiences for people. Um, but you know, quickly when I joined the industry, I flipped to sort of the real estate development investing side. So figuring out how can we make real estate uh, as efficient as possible and the operations of the business, how can we, you know, make that even better. So I got tons of lesson learns of actually ground up development of hotels and different experiences, learning all the questions to ask if something goes wrong, uh, and then pivoted back to the finance industry, ultimately joining sort of the private bank side. Originally, I always wanted to be closer to those clients and have those real connections and then sort of apply the investment experience that I got through the rest of my career. So I'm super excited to be here at City uh, and sort of mirror both of them together. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so we're talking about alternative investments. Uh, as an absolute specialist in the area, Anastasia, how how do you describe it to, I don't know, your mom or your dad or someone who might not be familiar with those terms? How, how do you explain it? Sure. Well, as you said, a lot of people think of investing as cash, stocks and bonds. And I would say alternative investments is anything outside of that. 
So if you're not buying a stock, but let's say you're investing in a private company uh, that, that's not publicly traded, that's an example of an alternative investment. Uh, if you are investing in, let's say, a strategy that's not only buying stocks, but maybe it's also selling stocks, in other words, a long, short hedge fund strategy, that also falls under the world of alternative investments. Um, or, you know, as, as Megan mentioned, real estate. Uh, typically, uh, it, investors don't really buy that in their portfolios at stocks and bonds, but they allocate separately to private real estate. And that also falls under the world of alternatives. So, you know, so broadly speaking, anything that's not cash, that's not a stock, that's not a bond. But the, these are alternative strategies. That's how I would I would describe that. And within that, there's many different categories, some of which I alluded to, but it's private equity, it's venture capital, it's private credit. So not traditional fixed income, but uh, private fixed income. And of course, uh, the hedge fund universe also falls under that space as well. Megan, uh, alternative almost suggests that it's some niche little bit on the side. I sort of I know you said sort of simply, how do you put it? It's, you know, basically privately negotiated transactions hopefully will generate better returns than those that investors would get in the public market. So you're trying to sort of look at the different risk spectrum and seeing, you know, why would you want to tie yourself up in the private market It is for the potential for sort of those outsized returns. And at the same time, if we look at it relative to some of the traditional stocks and bonds, right, if you look at the equity uh, market cap, for example, it's 125 trillion. So, you know, a lot larger than the 13 trillion. And also the global bond market cap is about 127 trillion as well. Uh, but, you know, to Megan's point is, and your point, Jorian, this is such a huge growth space. And I think Megan, you would agree that 13, you know, 14 trillion that we see in alternatives today, that's likely to double in size over the next five or so years. So that's why, you know, we're here and, uh, you know, quite excited to be talking about this. And, and who who has been involved in this market? Who have the traditional investors been? From my part, I would say it has been uh, the traditional investors that are institutions. And if you think about, you know, why would a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund uh, or an endowment foundation allocate to alternatives? Because those investors represent patient capital meaning they have a long time horizon. They don't need the money that they're investing for maybe, you know, 10 years plus. And because of that, um, they can afford to lock up that capital for a period of time without needing it back. So that's traditionally who has been investing in alternative investments. And, you know, if you think about the pool of capital that's institutional, it's very large. It's about $135 trillion that is controlled by institutions. And they have been large allocators to alternative investments, ranging in percentages, of course, but endowments and foundations. And again, because this is long-term patient perpetual capital, they've allocated in some cases close to 40 or 50% of their portfolios to a variety of alternative investment strategies. And then if you look at, you know, sovereign wealth funds or public pension funds, the allocation is probably closer to 20 percent. Uh, but again, it is a much greater percentage of portfolios that we see some of the private wealth clients um, allocate today. A anything you want to add to that, Megan? Uh, other people who invest in this area? 
I, I think uh, Stacia covered it in terms of like who is in it today, but I th think again, it's sort of the opportunity that all these private equity funds, all these managers really want to get into the space and sort of see the opportunity to move sort of from those pension funds, from those sovereign wealth funds um, to, you know, more ultra high net worth investors, family officers, and now sort of retail investors as well. And is there a, is there a reason? Maybe there's a really obvious reason and why it's institutions or ultra high net worths who have traditionally been in this space. Yeah, I mean, first, it's a clearly lack of access and just sort of that higher price point. So some of these, you know, funds have a $25 million entry point. So that just sort of limits the base of who can actually access this. So being able, you know, over the last, you know, 10 years, really driving down those minimums to some investment opportunities are, is, is, is $25,000. Like there's been a great evolution in terms of sort of just the access and the price point. And then these are sort of complex investments that you really have to understand the risks associated with that and, and capital being tied up longer in order to sort of make those decisions. So I, I would say, I mean, there's quite a few points I could go into, but like access and sort of complexity are probably the two things that have, um, you know, inhibited uh, this retail investor so far. So these are clearly not impulse uh, purchases that you've got to go in with your eyes open and there's got to be a lot of thinking and a lot of advice required. 100%. They're going to send you 100 page documents. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. Exactly. And you can't just press a button, right, as, as you would to buy a stock or, you know, to buy an ETF. This is, as, as Megan said, you know, here's a stack of paperwork. Historically, that's how the subscription process worked. And because this is not a one time investment, but this is a commitment that can be called over time, uh, as an example in private equity, that also requires the capital call management. So it's access, it's the amount of investments, and it's just what historically has been a pretty clunky subscription process, which is a lot for a private client to manage and also a lot for the manager uh, to manage as well. We've, we've said alternative investments is a, a catch-all term for a, a number of different I guess sub asset classes. Um, is there one that dominates? You know, what what are the the big parts of it, so to speak? Yeah, the two standouts within the close to fourteen trillion dollar figure that Megan you mentioned is private equity, which represents about four point two trillion in assets under management, and uh, that's barbelled with hedge funds. That's another four trillion dollars, give or take, uh, in assets under management. So those have been sort of the historically dominant uh, sectors within alternatives, but we are seeing great growth, for example, in venture capital. And if you think about all the innovation that's that's happening out there, whether it's artificial intelligence or you know biotech or decarbonization, a lot of these companies are doing this innovation. They're private and perhaps they're earlier stage, you know, perhaps they're you know later stage, but they're still private. So venture capital has been a big uh, growing space within alternatives. Um, and then Megan also mentioned uh, real estate and you know infrastructure and natural resources. And I would say that's been attracting more and more investor attention as well. They're looking for alternative uh, sources of yield to kind of supplement their portfolio. So private equity and hedge fund have been dominant, but again, some of those other strategies are catching up. Megan, I, I mentioned in my introduction, uh, I, I hope it was correct that, you know, they, they really boomed when interest rates were low. But as interest rates start creeping up, um, are they still as attractive? Is it still an area that people want to get involved with? 
Definitely. I think that people we talked about from the beginning sort of want the higher returns from investing in alternative investments. So I think that this is a really attractive time to begin investing. And normally when there are periods of distress, that's really when the best vintage is when it actually is the best time to uh, invest in these because see, managers, we're focused on doing due diligence to select managers that actually create value. They don't get lucky by, you know, buying low and selling high. But if you could get, you know, if you can take a great manager, you know, can execute and you can get a good entry point in terms of valuation, that really is, you know, the perfect time to be investing in alternative investments. So I think it definitely, you know, it, it puts the hurdle higher if people can get, uh, you know, with interest rates higher, if they can invest in something else, but it, it really is the right time for alternative investments. It, yeah, it's a really interesting point, uh, Megan and Jurian, because, you know, the hurdle rate is now 5%, right? And a lot of strategists, including myself, expectation for stock returns is really not all that great, at least for this year, kind of given what's happening with inflation and given the Fed that's still wanting to raise rates even more. So, and you've got bonds that maybe give you a yield of 5 or 6%, but guess what? Inflation is also, uh, you know, 5 or 6%. So that's not much in terms of real returns. So there is still this need to look for additional opportunities for your portfolio that can A, beat inflation, and B, potentially beat the muted returns that we expect from stocks, for example. And if I just think about historically, over the last five years, for example, the S&P returned 55% cumulatively over the last five years. If you look at venture capital, the returns have been 157% over the same five years. If you look at private equity, 123%. You know, of course, we can just invest on backward looking historical returns. But when we look at some of the assumptions, capital market assumptions uh, for returns going forward, uh, consensus out there that does this still expects private equity, for example, to beat the public equity benchmarks by at least two and a half percentage points. And Megan, you, you know, I'm sure as you think about uh, you know, due diligence and selecting some of the managers, you know, you're not just shooting for the median outperformance, you're looking to find managers that can deliver over and above that. But if we can do at least two and a half percent of outperformance in private equity, that's one of the reasons why investors still want to be looking to private equity. But I know from our previous conversations that this is now opening up to more individual investors. And um, what what's driving that? Megan? I think it is um, the demand, the opportunity, since the price point is coming, sort of the access um, at that lower price point, that sort of 25K, it becomes, you know, more available, as well as sort of providing more liquidity. So I think that's the, people normally think of private equity funds, they think it's sort of a 10-year lockup of their capital, but now they're been a lot of innovation in terms of creating semi-liquid and liquid products that can give you access to private equity, real estate, and credit that give you ability to subscribe monthly with a 100% capital call, as well as to, you know, redeem monthly and giving you potentially a, a current distribution as well. So I think the innovation in the industry, which again, is, is it's always tough because there's a lot of regulation. So we need a lot of good people at City to help drive to make these innovative products happen. But I think it's it's that innovation that really is driving the availability. I think people have been interested, maybe not knowing about it, um, but we're trying to, you know, demystify the space and pro provide better access. Anastasia, I'm sure iCapital has a, a view on what's uh, making this accessible. I guess this is your raison d'etre as a, as a technology business. Yeah, that's right. 
Well, first of all, just again, to put some numbers um, around it, you know, what's driving this is that half of the global wealth is actually held by private wealth, by individuals and family offices. We talked about the 140, you know, odd trillion in institutional wealth. And again, that's matched by the amounts that are held by individual investors of various size. And if I look at the allocation of those individual investors to alternatives, it's really not existent for, you know, some of the uh, smaller investment accounts. And maybe it's, you know, to the tune of 5% or less for some of the larger accounts. So there is a huge opportunity to diversify those portfolios. But what's driving it today versus Versus in the past, I would say it's a few things. You know, first of all, it's certainly the return expectations and the lower, you know, uh, the lower risk sometimes that's associated with some of these alternatives. So that's one thing that's driving the interest of private clients in alternatives. Who do you guys present these to? I mean, Megan, you're talking directly to your clients. Anastasia, do you have a relationship directly with clients or are you servicing wealth managers? And, you know, what are your respective messages out there for individuals to get involved with alternative investments? Lots of questions there. I'm going to ask (laughs) Megan first. Yeah, no, I think the key focus for us is education. So it's we have our bankers and our investment counselors and have those relationships directly with clients that we want to understand what are they looking for in their portfolio and does alternative investments make sense? Sort of do they have the risk appetite? Do they have those liquidity concerns? Uh, And so we spend a lot of time on education just you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of jargon and these terms, a lot of fancy words. Uh, and so, you know, we really want to make sure that before a client decides to invest in alternative investments, that they really, you know, understand um, the risks associated with it. And for and for our part, you know, we work with uh, we work with Megan, we work with other financial advisors in the industry to make sure that we can also in turn provide the necessary education to financial advisors that can use uh, with their with our clients as well. But I will echo what Megan said is, you know, this is still a relatively new space for private wealth. And there's a lot of, um, you know, terminology, there's the, you know, the lack of liquidity, there's different, you know, ways to measure performance. So that requires a significant amount of uh, education. I think that's great that the industry is coming together uh, to really uh, focus on that and deliver that to end clients. I'll just add on that sort of our role of manager selection is we're really trying to find those best opportunities for our clients um, for this thematic, you know, we look at long-term trends where we see things for the next 10 years, but like us sitting in the due diligence manager selection where clients can rely on us as a fiduciary, we're writing the hundred page memos and we're, we're spending a lot of time and making a recommendation of where we think and see opportunities are for the best sort of for this market environment. And another benefit we bring to our clients is that we are sort of pool, sort of pooling them together, crowdfunding them into these feeder structures so that we have more negotiation power with the managers so we can get them better terms in terms of their investment uh, than, you know, someone else who's just going in at 25 million. We're really trying to pool to over 100 million. And so we're able to get better rights than if they just invested themselves is another value prop from City. 
you know, Megan, that is so key, you know, the due diligence that, that your team does, because if we looked at public markets, there's relatively little dispersion between manager performance or relatively little, at least relative to private equity, for example. If you look at how different the performance of a, you know, large cap manager can be versus another one, it's relatively tight. It's relatively, you know, little difference. But then you have this huge, what we call interquartile spread between the performance of you know the top 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 private equity manager versus the median one so i just wanted to bring that point back up again that due diligence and manager selection is so key in making sure clients have a good experience in private markets uh, again anastasia mentioned that city and i capital work together explain what that relationship is how, how do you help each other bring alternative investments to the the world of individuals Yep. So we're working together to sort of innovate here in the space to provide our clients the access to these opportunities. So I think, again, we worked with them where they've sort of set up the feeder and they've managed the feeders for some more of the liquid opportunities. We're working with them to build out sort of our client facing um tool for, you know, investor relations and the technology, it's just sort of, it's easier to use. So I'd say overall using this technology is providing us, you know, faster access for our clients and a better sort of portal and tool. And we think, you know, the relationship's just going to continue as, as the space evolves. Anastasia, anything you would add to that? I assume you don't just work with City, you're working with a a bunch of different banks and finance houses, wealth managers, and how else do iCapital operate? Yeah, that's right. I mean, our mission is to really enable access for private clients to alternative investments. And there are several key pieces uh, in that. You know, first of all, we work with the general partners. So some of the largest asset managers and smaller ones uh, that want to expand to the world of private uh, private wealth. And we provide the technology to make that whole process seamless. We talked about the subscriptions, the capital calls. Um, so so that's a, uh, a big focus for for us. Then we work with uh, we work Megan, we work with City, we work with other uh, wealth managers that have also prioritized making alternatives more accessible to their clients. And once again, we provide the uh, the end to end kind of life cycle uh, technology for those relationships. And then the other part of our business is working uh, directly with uh, independent financial advisors and uh, reg registered investment advisors, RIAs, uh, you know, who may or may not have their uh, own due diligence departments. And if they don't, uh, they leverage our research and our due diligence um, uh, and leverage the funds that we uh, may have diligence and uh, selected for our uh, main platform. So those are some of the ways um, that we work with clients and the types of clients that we work with. But I would say, broadly speaking, for us, it's about uh, technology. Uh, it's about access and it's about education. And I think if we deliver on all those three pillars, then uh, this industry will be serving the private wealth uh, community much, much better. And is a logical next step in the future for these to become digital assets or is that a whole can of worms? Well, I, I think it's definitely a uh, an initiative that's worth looking at. I mean, if we can... Um, it seems like you can tokenize 
you, you know what, Megan, maybe you should take this one. No, I'll, no, I'll I, I, I could say that city, it's a different group within city, but like that is sort of the potential. The future is, is these digital assets, it's tokenization, it's working with fund managers of how are they able to build that out and offer it. So it's, it's definitely happening now. Cities like on the forefront of working with managers to figure it out. Uh, I, we'll see if it, it gets through our due diligence and our manager selection. I can't say it's a totally different process, but like that is something that could radically change the landscape and is something that people are working to drive change to right now. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on it. And for us, uh, we do have a, our digital ledger initiative, which is really designed to bring the whole ecosystem together. What is today a system of disparate processes and you know different stakeholders who may or may not talk to one another, our focus is really on having what we would call a single source of truth. Think of it as a single spreadsheet, you know, a, a single ledger that Everybody who's involved in whether it's a subscription process or the capital call process, everybody can have access to the single source of truth, can edit it, and it can be available uh, instantaneously to all the stakeholders. So I do think that blockchain digital ledger has potentially a huge role to play in alternatives, and uh, it takes all of us to to, to focus on its applications. Uh, I'm going to thank you so much much for being so clear and so engaged and so lucid uh, i've learned so much more um and i hope our listeners have too so thank you anastasia thank you megan thank you for your energy and your clarity uh i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you very much love it thank you for having us thank this you. is great citibank and ani capital are not affiliated and are independent companies though city has a nominal equity investment and in a capital Speakers views are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of City or any of its affiliates. Alternative investments are speculative and entail significant risks that can include losses due to leveraging or other speculative investment practices, lack of liquidity, volatility of returns, restrictions on transferring interest in the fund, potential lack of diversification, absence of information regarding valuations and pricing, complex tax structures and delays in tax reporting, less regulation and higher fees than mutual funds, and advisor risk. All opinions are subject to change without notice. Neither the information provided nor any opinion expressed constitutes a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. The expressions of opinion are not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. 